You know, if we really think about the large landscape of queer programming over those course of decades, the majority of it is gone. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On today's show, we're going to talk about archiving the sounds of LGBTQ community radio with Brian DeShazer. I'm going to start the program by playing a long archival tape that Brian provided to Radio Survivor. This show is called Homosexual News, and it was broadcast on WBAI in New York City in 1970, about one year after Stonewall. This is Charles Pitts. On Saturday night, August 29, 1970, a group of some two or three hundred young homosexual men and women gathered on the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street. Their purpose was to demonstrate and protest against the arrest of other homosexuals during the previous two weeks. According to a leaflet that they handed out, the police have been harassing gay people on 42nd Street for the past few weeks. Hundreds have been arrested and held overnight in an attempt to clean up the streets as they do for each election. The Central Park Rambles and other gay areas have also been raided. Gay people are forced to meet on the streets, in oppressive bars, and in the bushes by this repressive culture. Now the police are driving us from even this way of meeting each other. The night previous, Friday night, two things happened that were of concern to homosexuals. The first was that homosexuals were locked out of New York University's Weinstein Hall because the administration didn't want a homosexual group holding a dance there. That same night, three young homosexuals were attacked by a group of 25 straight guys and beaten severely, sending two of them to the hospital. That happened in Sharon Square. I heard you telling some other people that, that you had been harassed by the police on the street. Yes, I have many a times, but still in all, that does not give me a reason to go up to their face and call them pigs and so forth and so on. I have respect for them. Because, after all, they do give me my protection whenever I need it. Oh. Uh, where, where, have you, where have you been that they have... Uh, Times Square area, the village, all around. And have, have you found that if you were in trouble, they would protect you? Yes, as long as they didn't know what I was. Oh. It, are you drag queen? I used to be a female impersonator, yes, at one time. Did you have more trouble then when... Uh, than you do now? In some ways. How do you mean? Well, um, I would be carrying myself like what I was dressed as, and they would come up to me, and in front of a whole group of people, they would um, like say, hey, mister, you know, and stuff like this, which really isn't necessary, you know? Because, I mean, if I'm minding my own business, why, they, why can't they mind theirs? They're out here harassing homosexuals and so forth and so on, while meanwhile someone is robbing someone else's pocketbook and stuff. You know, and a lot of people have said this. And, you know, it, it seems like a whole bunch of BS at first. But if you really come to think about it, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, the way police are, are, you know, going around insulting other people. And then when you say something back to them quickly, you're wrong. And their first remedy is their billy club. Yeah. Have, you ever, have you ever been beaten? Yes, I was. As, as a drag or the way you are now? As the way I am now. And what, what was the provocation? Well, um, I was walking down the street with two friends of mine. 
And so, you know, like, um, we were talking and so forth and so on. So this one cop said, um, hey, how about a job? How about a what? Job. Yeah. So I said, well, why don't you go ask your mother? After all, she was the one who brought you into the world. Why not ask her? You know, so then, um, I was wrong, you know, because I shouldn't have answered him. But still in all, he, that was no reason for him to come upon me and beat me the way he did. And, uh, how, how exactly did he beat you? Well, he took out his billy club. First he slapped me, then he took out his billy club, hit me across my legs. And um, he knocked me through a window. As a matter of fact, I still have a mark on my leg. Where was the window? Where were you? Was this at Times Square or in the village? At the village. In the village? Yes. How long ago? This was about six months ago. And um, have you had any friends or that have been arrested or have you been arrested? Yes, I have. Many a times for loitering, soliciting, even though I don't know why I'm soliciting. If a man comes up to me and asks me for a match, you know, I don't see how I can be soliciting. Have you spent any time in jail, or were the one charges night, dropped? One night, yes. The charges are always dropped? Yes, and it's embarrassing because, and it's a hassle because you have to go down there, you have to be insulted by the people who are there, and then, you know, just to li hear the judge say, um, case dismissed, you know, case closed. I'm not holding it, I'm just telling you what your ground rules are. Okay, let's, let's march! <laughs> Again, that was the archival tape from WBAI in New York from 1970. The program was called Homosexual News. It aired about a year after Stonewall. The audio comes to us uh, courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts, who produced the content, and it's part of a collection of gay radio archives, of community radio, that we're talking about today on Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Cohen, and my co-host is Jennifer Waits. Today we're talking to Brian DeShazer, an independent radio researcher and the founder of the Queer Radio Research Project, Pacifica Radio. Brian, I'm so excited to talk to you because you've done some tremendous research and archival work about queer voices on the radio. And I guess I want to start by asking, why is community radio in particular important for gay history and LGBTQ history? Well, I think it's uh, mainly because the anonymity was a very important aspect of of coming out on the radio um, at a time when evidence against an individual might cause them problems in the workplace um, or legal issues. So what I've been really excited about is that the perspectives and events that have remained unaddressed by the primary document record are now receiving due recognition by academia, meaning that the conversational and community-building character of radio history lends itself to the civil rights movement as well as the um, LGBTQ or queer rights movement. Brian, thank you so much for saying that. I want to underline it for the listeners. What is, what is unique about radio as a document that gives a new portrait of, of the people who are sharing their voices queer people and gay people in decades past? What is unique about radio and community radio in particular? Sure. Well, community radio has that um, small town feel to it. They're usually people um, in conversation about local activities, local events, and local um, communities that were being built. So much of academia and the historic record comes from 
a James Baldwin speech that was transcribed and published, um, or a lecture that was transcribed and published, or and even in community radio, speeches and poetry and oration has been a big part of that. But the historic record and how we how history is written is rarely because of a conversation between two people that are unknown. And that's where community radio and the LGBT history, which I call a hidden history because it is not famous people that people can um, uh, a list as the you know the hundred greatest LGBTQ people in in American history. That's not how the community was built, and that's not how the um, the gay rights movement of the 1960s and 1970s really um, was built. You know, after Stonewall in 1969, it really wasn't until 1973, 1974, that the five Pacifica radio stations in New York, L.A., Berkeley, and actually that those are the three that existed during that time. The other two, WPFW and KPFT, um, didn't come into being until 75 and 78. But it what it took these four years for the for the three radio stations to really. Um, examine what was needed for the LGBT community and what kind of radio show it was going to be and who was going to produce that radio show. I mean, then how to get those people and train them to do radio. Um, so community radio is an important part of the fabric of how communities, the, the unknown, as I, I call us, um, really came into being. I would assume then you're contrasting that with mainstream radio or commercial radio where there wasn't that ability to have anonymity or community building in the way I'm thinking as you're describing this I'm thinking of things like talk shows that that might have been a place on community radio where people were talking about these very personal issues in an anonymous way is that is that kind of part of that history Right, right. In fact, one of the um, important parts of those early programs, and there's a a 26-week series um, that was broadcast on the New York radio station, WBA, in 1968 through 1969, overlapping Stonewall. Um, Mm -hmm. And those really were about those conversational um, pieces of a conversation with young lesbians moderated by Barbara Giddings. Um, and Charles Pitts, you know, doing listener phone-in calls with people who came to come out on the radio because it was anonymous and it was a safe place and it was a safe haven for these um, rather raucous conversations and very deep questions that people had about their sexuality. So people were actually coming out on the radio. Absolutely. And those are some of the recordings that I can share with you, both a a letter written to WBAI by a young lesbian being read by Barbara Giddings, or a 16-year-old boy calling into a radio show on WBAI in 1969, 1970, asking about his boyfriend and his girlfriend and how to tell his mother and where to meet people. And as a high school student, what is he supposed to know? Um, and it's it's riveting, not only because it's so um, bold and unapologetic with how the conversation happened, but also how relevant it is today. Those questions are still being asked of young people because the history isn't there and the information isn't there necessarily for everyone to access in every single town and across America. And that's something I've been thinking about as I think about 
your archival project is what was the world like when when people were calling into radio shows and coming out during this time period and and what was it like for people who were queer you know could they be could they be open about their relationships in public or were there you know what what was what was the environment like when when people had to be anonymous calling into a radio talking about their lives well and actually one of the um more prominent programs from WBAI is from 1965, I believe. Um, and it's for professionals coming out on the radio. That's the title of the program. Um, prior to that, there was a 1963 program, which was called Live and Let Live, which does survive in the Pacifica Radio Archives. But it's eight gay men in an apartment on the Upper West Side talking about their personal uh, lives and what it meant to be... A known homosexual was not is which was not the same as being an open homosexual. You know, Interesting. you you know, you lived your life as you did, and people knew that you were homosexual, but you didn't announce it. You didn't have a process to come out in the workplace or even with the family. So between 1963 and 1968, there was really like a no man, no person's land. Um, in terms of what was being broadcast on the radio. But in 1968, they really did produce a 26-week series. Some of those program titles were called The Leather Scene, um, The Violence Against Homosexuals, and where you know, Homosexual Meeting Places. I got a whole program about where do you meet each other? Is it the gay bars, which were owned by the mafia and were seedy and dangerous, um, to other places? So even in the 68... 69 pre-Stone Mall, post-Stone Mall years, the main question that was being raised and being in the public informed by WBAI host really was about identity, self-awareness, and finding a safe place to be yourself and an authentic self in the city that you live in. What's um, surprising about those conversations is the hosts that are answering the questions for listener call-ins are very matter-of-fact, almost to a legal point of there is no shame in it. You're valid for asking the question, and here's the best answer I can give you. Here's some, mm-hmm. co- here's some information of where you can find out more. So community radio and Pacifica radio, um, before NPR um, really got rolling, really was the only place for free information back and forth of information about the queer communities. And Brian, I hear you. You're talking right now primarily about um, the Pacifica affiliate station in New York City in the 60s and 70s. And I imagine that each, well, each Pacifica station that you referenced as part of the archive that you're trying to build, um, LA and the San Francisco Bay Area, I imagine each had a unique uh, gay culture, especially uh, community radio gay culture. Um, I wonder if you could talk about about the differences. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in uh, I wrote an article in the Journal of Radio and Audio Media about um, these histories, and one of the things I really wanted to focus on was the difference in the f- five Pacifica radio stations with regard to the queer communities and how the radio station invited those communities in and how it responded back to the communities. Um, And yes, indeed, one station or another had a um, sort of flashpoint um, period 
that helped move the um, chess piece forward. Uh, 1956 is considered the first queer radio program broadcast on KPFA in Berkeley, which was Allen Ginsberg reading his poem Howl. And that's very, fa oh. very famous, very well known. Um, it's been played millions of times on KPFA and Pacifica Radio. But because Allen Ginsberg was known as an open homosexual, the, the poem he read did have queer content in it. That's considered by scholars as the first public radio program of homosexuals. The next point, um, as KPFA listeners and Pacifica aficionados would know, the next important program was 1958, Elsa Knight Thompson, in a program called The Homosexual in Our Society, where she interviews an open homosexual, a psychologist, and the mother of a homosexual, um, a representative from the Mattachine Society. Um, but that conversation was rather clinical, really about saying that we're not um, crazy people who should be institutionalized and have a psychological problem. Yeah, 1958 again. That was 1958. So, so then we jumped to 1963, which was the next Flashpoint program in New York City. Now, the important part of that story is that those Pacifica stations shared programs. So literally a, less than a year before that 1963 program in New York was broadcast, the 1958 program from Berkeley was broadcast in New York. So the programs were shared with those program, uh, with those communities. So the New York programmer said, hey, wait a minute, that program that you just aired, we should do our own program, and we should do it this way. Um, so each one sort of layered on top of the other how it influenced the next generation of programming. That's fascinating. And you've, you've just, um, you just talked about the Bay Area and, and New York City. Um, how did L.A., Houston, and D.C. fare? Right. Well, um, L.A., you know, KPFK, um, also rebroadcast that 1958 program the year mm -hmm. of their inauguration. Like, they started broadcasting in 1959. So the, um, in the opening months, they broadcast that homosexual in our society as one of the most important programs in Pacifica's 10-year history at the time. Um, but I think... KPFA in Berkeley and KPFK in Los Angeles both had the like the you know, superlative firsts of opening up the doorways to um, individual homosexuals doing commentaries in you know, small 15-minute commentaries as part of community um, outreach. And then from those individual commentaries built coalitions, um, yeah. you know, the Gay Radio Collective in L.A., um, and there were a couple of them in Berkeley, both uh, a, a lesbian um, pro a lesbian collective and a gay men's collective. So there was this um, this other, the next period in the seventy three seventy four was when um, e each letter of the LGBT started to define their own niche. Um, and their own reason for their own programming. So there were mm. experiments. There was a, a program in L.A. called Gay at Heart. There was a program called Lesbian Nation. There was a program called The Lesbians. <laughs> um, so there was experimentation with an individual programmer. Um, and this is one of the collections I actually discovered in a warehouse in Palm Springs. I'm doing my research, reading the KPFK folio printed program guides from those years, I found a guy named Richard Gollins who did 
um, Gay Community Services Center commentaries. I found him on Facebook, and I emailed him, um, and I said, I found record of you doing this program, but I worked at Pacifica for 20 years in the archives, and I've never heard of it. And he said, and I, he contacted me back. He said, oh, yes, and I have those tapes in a storage unit. So uh, I was lucky enough to retrieve the tapes and get them donated um, via Richard's preference to University of California, Santa Barbara, special research collections, where they digitized them all for me. Um, so I have listened to them. And they are Richard Gollentz as a representative of the Gay Community Services Center, which is now the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center, um, interviewing the founders of the center, you know, uh, um, interviewing um, Arthur Bell from New York, an activist. He also interviewed the founder of the first VD clinic for gays and lesbians in Los Angeles, um, and five women who were the moderators of women's gay consciousness groups, consciousness raising groups. Well, let's listen to a clip that Brian is talking about. This is Richard Gollins speaking on KPFK, the L.A. Pacifica radio station, in 1973. Uh, this clip is with uh, an interview with Morris Knight, and they're talking about uh, Stonewall five years after it occurred in 1969. The clip is from 1974. Good afternoon. This is Richard Gollins with commentary from the Gay Community Services Center. About two days ago, I got a telephone call from Morris Kite, who's, I would say, the father of Los Angeles Gay Liberation. And uh, whenever Morris calls and has something he wants to talk about on the show, that's automatically a show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners some background as far as... Here is the uh, situation, brothers and sisters. Last Sunday, throughout the United States, gay people celebrated what for us is a high holy month the anniversary of the Stonewall, a reasonably non-violent riot lasting a couple of days in New York in the last week in June 1969. It's an important event for us, and we celebrate it not by rioting, but in prideful ways. Throughout the country, I took enormous personal pride in the things I saw happening. It fell my lot to be invited to come to New York to be the keynote speaker of the Christopher Street Liberation Day rally in Washington Square. An amazing achievement. Several hours of entertainment. Barbara Gittings of Philadelphia was the other keynoter. Bette Midler came, received an ovation. It was a high and electric time. Afterward, uh, friends had a champagne and steak party, which is unusual for me because it's usually hamburgers and Cokes. And afterward, some poets and writers came and said, I think what you need is to get away and, and let's just talk. So we went at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning to Riverside Park in New York, not a soul to be seen for miles around, and we just walked and read poetry and sang and kissed one another and listened to the Hudson River as it uh, slushed away and heard the boats in the distance, and I couldn't have felt better. When I returned to the place I was staying in New York in the apartment of Morty Manford in the village, the phone was ringing. It was my associates at the center and from around the country saying, where have you been? You're needed. And what am I needed for now? And I was told of an enormous tragedy which had happened in New Orleans that afternoon when all the rest of the nation was finishing its gay pride. This awful thing happened. Here are the facts. There is a gay bar at the corner of Iverville and uh, Chartres, except they say Charters down there street, in the very edge of the Vaucaray, the French Quarter in New Orleans. It's a three-story brick building, very old, very dry, very dusty. 
On the first floor are two non-gay bars. The second floor, the gay bar, the upstairs, and the third floor they say is used for sleeping. I don't know what that means. Happily, nobody was there at the time of the fire. Somewhere along the way, a fire erupted in the building. We think we know the cause of it. However, we promised the police in New Orleans that we would not discuss the cause until more information had been developed. Whatever happened, flames rushed into the air conditioning unit, spread throughout the bar, and before the Holocaust was over, 29 of my brothers and a sister were burned to death. I might add the sister was non-gay. She was there with her two sons. There were other non-gay people in the bar. 29 dead. An enormous number wounded sufficient to require hospital care and then made ambulatory. Fifteen wound up in the hospitals. At this moment, at the time recording the show, the hospital count is down to ten. Four are in exceedingly critical condition. One is in guarded condition, and five are in fair condition. Expectations are that not quite all will make it, I'm sorry to say. So, in New Orleans, we found a lot of things waiting for us. We found a good deal of misunderstanding, the makings of an anti-gay pogrom. A member of the police department, chief of detectives, had said to the media that it was a queer bar, using that vicious pejorative from out of the past. He had said also that it was frequented by burglars and thieves, and it was well-known gay people don't carry proper identification, and thus we would never be able to identify the bodies. The Times-Picayune called me in New York to ask me my response to that, and I said, well, not very good. I think at this time uh, the police need to be calling for compassion and warmth and love and understanding, that there is a major tragedy upon our hands and that we need to be responsible and responsive at this time. And if that police person has those kinds of ideas, I would like later on to talk with him. But right now I don't want to talk with him about that. I want to talk with him about the fact that we have a duty to the dead and to the wounded and to this community and to their families. Some kook called one of those television talk shows and said that he represented a group called the Black Mamas and the White Mamas, using a showbiz term. This is not all that racist. It's just the term he was using. And that they were going to carry on vigilante action against us, and particularly against me and Reverend Troy Perry, who had also come to New Orleans. The station asked my opinion of that, and I said, well, I advocate freedom of speech. I think all words should be said, but occasionally some words can be really harmful. And it's possible that kind of statement could set off a chain reaction of people who might indeed get the idea that it would be a lot of fun kill a lot of gay people and burn a lot of gay bars and make our lives miserable. And thus we knew that part of our problem was to, was to counter that kind of thing. Also, we had suspected we would be treated as outside agitators, and we were. We were suspected also that the community there wouldn't understand who it was very well, and it turned out it didn't. Many of the victims of the fire were holding their hands over their mouths and saying, please don't say to the public that it was a gay bar. And we said, fine, we respect your wishes, but it's in every guide in the country as a gay bar. Everybody knows that. Can't we now at this time say to the world, yes, indeed, we're gay and we're proud and that we have a duty? Again, that is a radio clip, an archival clip from KPFK in Los Angeles from 1974 with Richard Golentz uh, speaking with Morris Knight. Audio comes to Brian DeShazer and to Radio Survivor, courtesy of UC Santa Barbara Library Special Research Collections, after Brian DeShazer essentially rescued the tape from a hot storage unit in Santa Barbara after tracking down Richard Gollins, uh, finding out that the program existed. And now let's go back. We'll go back to the interview with Brian DeShazer on Radio Survivor. Maybe it's time again to, to talk about what your project is. Like, um, tell us more about about this archive that you're building, you know, that, that you were doing this work in the first place to save, to save these one-of-a-kind tapes. Right. Well, I established the Queer Radio Research Project to um, really research the print and audio holdings of Pacifica Radio, 
uh, create a Pacifica LGBTQ timeline of the five stations, you know, identify holdings in existing collections that are not at Pacifica, like at the one archives, um, the one National Gay and Lesbian Archives at USC, New York Public Library. Many of the individual programmers at Pacifica donated their tapes to local institutions, either themselves or their estates after they died. I would like to merge those collective records and assess descriptions and access to those recordings um, and publish a user's guide and aggregate a database eventually. Um, but that's, you know, up the line. But right now, literally, I'm still reading every entry in all five stations' folio printed guides from literally 1949 on a monthly basis um, to identify those programs. And you also have to, I also learned as I was doing it is not all queer programs are identified with keywords that we use now as researchers. Those early programs from the 60s don't necessarily use the word homosexual or the word lesbian wasn't really used. They used the word gay women a lot mm -hmm. in those early days. So even the vocabulary had to sort of be researched before I could start looking into those records. You know, uh, a speech by uh, a reading of James Baldwin, James Baldwin reading from Giovanni's room is not listed as a queer program, but it definitely is fits within the genre of queer radio um, that I need to identify. Interviews with Christopher Isherwood and Anais Nin, none of those have queer identifiers. So I have to sort of gather those and then start looking at those other programs that are identified with keywords that are um, known to queer researchers now and then find out if they exist. You know, so there's many programs in the folio printed guides that did not survive on a reel-to-reel -reel tape in the Pacifica archives or necessarily in an, in an individual's collection. Um, so that's how I'm sort of tracing and charting um, the program chronology of each station and then merging them together to see how they relate to each other. And Brian DeShazer, we're on the line with you because, well, you are, um, you're an independent radio researcher and you're working on this project to sort of put together this archive of gay community radio, of queer radio, especially from the Pacifica Radio archives. It's very exciting because I, there's a lot that community radio is good at, and there's a lot of things that community radio does well. And I think it's really unique that um, in a time in the United States where gay voices uh, didn't exist uh, on the radio, on television, not maybe not even in print in, in a lot of places, uh, that there was a, a space was made for them on the radio and and or not even the space was made they they took space on the radio they their voices were on the radio at these stations which was really a unique uh, moment in the history of the media uh, in the United States I'm just really excited about these tapes um, yes and I'm actually excited that you know academia and um, you know professors and educators um, in media studies and in um, queer studies are recognizing this um, form of history as important as the written word or the video work um, that's more contemporary and more accessible. Um, even scholars in queer studies aren't aware of this landscape of history that is 
you know, mostly lost. You know, if we really think about the large landscape of queer programming over those course of decades, the majority of it is gone and has either been thrown away, um, taped over, or lost for some reason. And the main reason, so what we do save and can rescue certainly should be prioritized, which is what I'm trying to do with bringing awareness to these collections, um, mm -hmm. is, is trying to address the, the fact that, one, the tapes are deteriorating faster than money can afford to get them digitized and cataloged and described properly, so they're um, able to be found by scholars and researchers in the future, um, but also that... Um, you know, to have them transcribed is a dream of mine. Um, you know, the hearing impaired have never heard or had access, I mean, say the hearing impaired have never had access to some of these valuable recordings that I've mentioned, the Homosexual in Our Society, Live and Let Live, an Oscar Wilde documentary, you know, Wilde and Stein, you know, the IMRU, the um, interviews with the Gay Community Services Center, you know, none of that is in print form yet. So, you know, one of my dreams mm -hmm. is to, you know, get some of it published to where um, the information is then seen as valuable and then it can sort of, again, um, reinforce the need for more funding to go to these small institutions that have recordings. How can, and as you're mentioning in this, how can people find some of this material now? They can call me. <laughs> um, you, know, I, you know, I really am still at the, the beginning stages of building a website where I can um, post some of this information, like a spreadsheet of, you know, um, records that I found um, and information in the folios, um, even photographs and essays. You know, one of the big questions for me was what happened in June of 1969 at WBAI, the New York City, the night of Stonewall. Did anything happen? Did anything survive? What was the station's intentions? What was the gay programmer's intentions? Um, and so the written record, you know, those folios were printed months in advance, so there was no chance that I would find what would happen on that night. But I did find, I think five years later in a folio, there was interviews with people that were there on the scene and so I sort of know what kind of, you know, what happened that night at midnight. Um, somebody preempted the program and did special reports, but none of that survives. Hmm. And what if people, I'm, I'm thinking about this, this cache of tapes that was in storage in Palm Springs, and, and perhaps there are other secret hidden archives that individuals have kept throughout the country. So... If people listening have access to to tapes of queer programming, what should they do with that material? Um, they should call me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the guy. So you know, so what? Um, you know, to, to find me on Facebook, just find me at Brian DeShazer and communicate with me, and I can um, help you from there or answer questions until the website is built. Um, but in terms of if people have collections that they want to preserve in some way. You know, yes, definitely contact me or contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. There's a collection at the One National Gay and Lesbian Archives at USC, um, which I'm actually getting ready to study 
in the next course of action if I receive a fellowship grant that I applied for. They have two 2,000 tapes of IMRU from the 1970s from KPFK, but they have no equipment to digitize them or audition them. Um, and the descriptive, descriptive records aren't detailed enough to really um, inform scholars. So it's my intention to do a, you know, a formal tape assessment of the mm. physical tapes of their condition, as well as you know, a, um, uh, an audition of the descriptive records to give them an incentive to prioritize that collection for digitization under USC wow. what, uh, grant writing. As near as you can tell, how, what is on those tapes? What is, what is this program, IMRU, from KPFK in Los Angeles? Right. Well, this is the gay radio series that started in 1974 as a collective um, um, series. You know, it wasn't a singular producer that decided everything, but collectives submitted programming from individuals who produced, went out into the field or you know, did personal interviews. Um, so those recordings of IMRU never made it to the Pacifica Radio Archives for some reason. Um, sometimes it's because of the trust issue. You know, Pacifica Radio Archives in the 1970s had not yet been established to then promise those indiv individual producers that they would get copies back or they would have access mm. to them. And also there's that part of being afraid that a queer program was going to be erased on purpose because of it being um, um, questionable by the FCC. You know, a programmer might be scared that the program would be um, uh, retrieved by the FCC for some legal purpose. Huh. Has that, Brian, can you, was there a reason to be worried that that was a possibility? Did, did the FCC ever enforce... Um, you know, I'm assuming obscenity rules upon Pacifica stations based on gay content? Um, yes, actually there were. There were two license challenges to two radio stations, one KPFK and one WBAI, I think. And I'm going to have to go back to my own article. But um, Edward Albee's <laughs> play The Zoo Story, which was a gay play was broadcast and that started a um, FCC challenge against the KPFK license, but none of them won. Um, so the mm. zoo, zoo story was a big factor. And then another challenge was just generally speaking that it was offensive material, obscene material being broadcast, which was basically a conversation between a 16-year-old boy calling into a known homosexual asking questions about what does he do with the fact that he loves his girlfriend and his boyfriend <laughs> um, oh. and, and that really was the challenge and that really was the fear of that programmer who had that tape of if I give it to the station then it'll then I'm definitely going to be um, you know in danger in danger but if I hide it under yeah. if I hide it under my bed nobody will know and, wow. and that's really how a lot of these tapes ended up in a storage unit in Palm Springs. You know, what, and also, the stations at the time didn't want the tapes. So you're, you're describing these tapes themselves would, in fact, potentially be evidence of a crime because uh, things in the United States were such that a gay person talking, frankly, about their sexuality 
on the radio um, uh, could be considered evidence that that um, that could get a lot of people in trouble. Is that is that true? Is that why the the tapes were were also uh, difficult to archive? Uh, yes. Absolutely. I think that question is a, is a valid yes. Um, another little collection that I just received um, recently that I didn't know existed um, was WBAI New York City 1969-1970 called the Homosexual News. Um, and those tapes lived in a closet of the producer until his death just recently and his estate executor contacted me. And so I'm now going through those to identify um, you know, any references to Stonewall since um, historians are looking for any evidence of Stonewall. Um, but back to the question about legality and, you know, why did individuals save programs and not donate them to Pacifica radio archives or Pacifica radio stations were interested in them? You know, the one program that I highlighted of um, Charles Pitts taking a phone call from a 16-year-old man um, about his sexuality that in and itself, that whole conversation could be considered a crime because he's talking to a minor um, and, and giving advice about um, what is legal and what isn't legal. And basically everything at the time was illegal. Let's take a listen now to uh, the call-in show that we've been talking about. Uh, it's from WBAI. The program was called The Outside. It was hosted by Charles Pitts and the recording was made in June of 1968, and it comes to us courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts. I did call for some advice. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Ask me, and I've got my hand on the button. (laughs) (laughs) All right, keep it there. Uh, Well, try to be delicate if it covers any, you know, sensitive areas. All right. Mainly, what I'd like to know is, well, I have a girlfriend, and I'm going steady with her, but I also have very peculiar desires. What what sort of peculiar desires? You mean for guys? Yeah, well, yeah. And, well, what's uh, peculiar about that? Uh, what's peculiar about it? Many people seem to consider it peculiar. Oh, right. Okay. All right. And you, you go along with them, right? Do you oh, agree I, with them? Up to now, I've been going along with my desires. Oh, you've been going along with your desires? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Very nice. And now, mainly what I want to know Another hedonist. Now I'm 16. At what point will I achieve certain legal difficulties by continuing to follow my uh, desires, even if it would include making friendships with people who are younger than me. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, if you're you're 16 and you are um, having um, very personal relationships with other 16-year-old kids, generally you're not bothered because this is accepted. And even among the more sophisticated people in uh, society now, you could probably even be having sex with these other people. And it would still be accepted on the, on keeping in mind that it's just a phase you're going through, you see, that everybody is, uh, has this, it's a Freudian thing, a horrible, terrible Freudian thing, <laughs> well, I've misinterpretation of it. You know, it's not a phase, it's me. Yeah. Well, it, it, in a sense, it's a phase, but it's not in, it, it, it's irrelevant. Anyway, um, so you're not going to, you probably won't be hassled unless your parents are uptight about it, if they are, or no, if I neighbors. Very liberal parents. Oh, okay. Well, then they're going to think it's a phase. And if they, uh, if they don't think it's a phase, you've got beautiful parents. 
I mean, that is, if you continue to do it. And if uh, and probably you don't have beautiful parents, because I think I think four people in the last survey that was conducted, four people in the United States have beautiful parents. Well, I'm living mainly with mostly my mother, and uh, uh -huh. I, you know, she tells me right from wrong, and I regulate from there. Oh, but um, what, what she hasn't turned you against women, has she? Oh no, no, I have oh. a girlfriend. Also, oh. I, I'd like to know if you think I should tell my girlfriend. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, it depends on your girlfriend. You know, you have to kind of psych out the situation and see how hip various people are. If you're very open about it, you're going to get screwed the rest of your life. Yeah, that, that's that's another thing. Um, I'm not too open. Yeah. Right. And uh, it just, and, just uh, depends I don't feel on. Like a career. Yeah. Uh, th there are some careers you can have, but if you don't want to be a hairdresser or a window dresser no, or a dresser drawer I'm or whatever. For medicine. Medicine. Well, you might be able to get away with it there. I know a lot of gay doctors. <laughs> I don't. Uh. And again, you just heard a clip from a listener call-in to WBAI in 1968. With the, the program was called The Outside. It was hosted by Charles Pitts. It comes to Radio Survivor from Brian DeShazer, courtesy of the estate of Charles Pitts. In the 60s and 70s, Young people calling up to ask honest questions about their sexuality if it, if they weren't uh, fully confident in their own heterosexuality could be considered a crime on the radio, uh, which is um, which might be difficult for people to understand in the year 2019 that the level of censorship and the 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 status of the gay community as being um, not legally protected uh, when it comes to just talking on the radio about their existence. Um, it might be a surprise to people, and it, it's uh, it's still a surprise to me, even though I'm aware of the history. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's a it was a surprise to me when I heard that conversation about how blatant and unapologetic it was on both of their parts. Um, you know, the 16 year old boy was um, clearly clearly um, you know ahead of his time in terms of being a high school student with um, having the deep questions about his identity, not just about um, you know the sex the sex act. You just sort of alluded to this and some things that have surprised you, and I'm really curious to hear what you've learned about queer history from digging into the archives. Well, I, I think it's been really surprising that I've found brothers and sisters that I didn't know I had. You know, all those people from those early days were saying the same things that people need to hear today. I'm um, certainly in my own personal evolution. Um, you know, I came out in a small town in Virginia in high school when there was no gay and lesbian center in the town. There was no gay radio show. Um, there were no other individuals that I knew. Um, there was one gay bar, but it was all across the water. I couldn't get to it, and I couldn't drive anyway. Um, so understanding that we haven't it's not a, a end game in terms of the information of coming out. And this journey happens every day to different individuals that have to go through this journey. So even a program from 1974 rebroadcast today can still serve the same need it did back in 74 by giving an individual um, the validation of being who they are. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, that was, I mean, that leads to kind of another question of how you think, 
how would you like people to use these types of archives? And I guess, I guess you're explaining that, that these shows still hold so much weight, even in 2019, when, when things have vastly improved for the gay community, we can still be inspired by and learn from, from these recordings from the past. Absolutely. And I think that's why they're still on the air. You know, I'm RU is still on the air at KPFK. Um, there is a gay radio show on KPFT. There's Out FM on WBAI. And Sophie's Parlor on WPFW is a, a women's program that broadcasts lesbian information. And there's another LGBT program. So I think that's part and parcel of why the need is still there. And, and as, as far as we've come since Stonewall, we are seeing a lot of backlash, both nationally and internationally, um, you know, as the transgender movement, you know, gains some notor- notoriety, um, it also creates some backlash. So, Brian DeShazer, you're putting together this, this archive, this one-of-a-kind archive uh, of, of queer and gay uh, community radio content. I'm wondering how much there is about uh, transgender issues, which even at this moment, I don't imagine that there's a community radio transgender-specific uh, program, let alone something from the, the 70s or the 80s. Have you found anything? Right. You know, that that's a really great point. You know, as I was doing this program, you know, and, and calling it the LGBTQ History Project, you know, and I do use the Queer Radio Research Project to... Um, just encompass everything and make it simpler. But, you know, but there was the question of like, there really hasn't been a program series by and for transgender produced by a transgender collective or individual um, speaking to a transgender audience. Um, the LGBT programs that are on the air now have sort of in, been in, inclusive as much as they can be. Um, well, I won't even say as much right. as they can be. They've been inclusive as they've told me they've been inclusive. Um, but it's still, in in my opinion, um, there should be a transgender-produced program on public radio that addresses the specific and individual needs of the transgender communities. Because there's transgender men, there's transgender women, there's cis men, there's cis women... Um, and everything and everything in between of the non, non-binary and fluidity, gender fluidity. So there's a lot more that needs to be questioned and answered. Um, and I think it, the, the time is right for this to happen. And I think that's one of the outcomes of my research is showing that the transgender community hasn't, and even the bisexual community for that matter, um, hasn't had the a space given to them as much as gay men, and I'll even say gay white men, um, or lesbians. Um, but I would say predominantly gay white men had the seat um, first and foremost, um, and sort of um, allowed lesbians to get their shoulders in until through the feminist movement, lesbians demanded their own space. Um, you know, there is evidence of transgender issues being brought up in some of those early programs. Uh, transgender um, violence by the police um, is a program title from KPFA from the 1960s. Um, so you know it, it it is there, but as you said, you know some communities that are are increasing both in size and um, 
ability to function in our society does need to have space to talk about um, their experiences in the workplace and sexual harassment and all that goes with um, being a human being, frankly. And that's been a great aspect of community radio to provide space for all kinds of voices. So I can only imagine that there are that are folks thinking about coming up with this type of programming, or perhaps it already exists, perhaps at at smaller, more localized stations or college radio stations. Yeah, that's a good time to to let our listeners know that if you are aware of a a, a current radio program or even um, alternate media program, because radio is not the only game in town in 2019, please do reach out to us. Podcast at Radio Survivor is our email address. We'd love to hear about uh, these shows, what's going on right now, um, as opposed to this conversation that we're having about about the history of community radio, um, where where a lot of the bulk of the excitement and the bulk of our conversation today has been about the 1960s and the 1970s and as well as the 80s. We haven't we haven't talked very much about the 80s, Brian DeShazer. No, and uh you know when we talk about the 80s, you know the AIDS epidemic is the the biggest news story of that decade yeah. um which started in 1986. Um but I'll have to say Pacifica Radio was at the forefront of broadcasting information, um, practical information, as well as um, um, psychological information about what the AIDS epidemic was, AIDS epidemic was doing. Um, so even before AIDS had a name, Pacifica was broadcasting information about um, the gay cancer um, and, and continued valiantly to broadcast conferences and interviews with doctors who were, um, you know, in the research field, um, and not only, so yeah, the AIDS epidemic was the big story of the '80s, and these programs that had been already well established for more than ten years: IMRU, Out FM, um, the Fruit Punch Collective. I think it had already been been disbanded, but at the time there was a gay program at KPFA. Um, so yeah, luckily there was already a space and experienced producers to handle the big story of the AIDS epidemic when commercial radio and commercial television was still shy of it. Yeah, and I can imagine again the what what we've been talking about today on our program on Radio Survivor is just the power of community radio to hear uh, voices on the day they're being recorded, humans, people talking about their feelings, and also the news that is relevant to them. Uh, in the moment, the day that it's being recorded, and as the AIDS crisis unfolded, there was so much. There was so much lack of information. There was so much lack of. There was so much silence, both officially, but just also those years were such a. Um, there, there was so much to talk about, and so I can imagine that on the community radio, uh, these shows, they, they really are probably one of the primary documents available, just to hear, just to hear people talking about these issues in real time when things were so intense? Uh, yeah, as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, the conversational being important. You know, so commercial media, you know, had headlines about the AIDS epidemic and how many people had died and how many people were infected and what was the possibility of infection. Whereas Pacifica Radio really had those conversations with real people who were dealing with the everyday um, aspects of the disease, both as doctors, physicians, researchers, 
um, people who were losing their friends and family left and right, and also the institutions and organizations that were built as a response to the AIDS epidemic. You know, so we're talking about 1986 to, well, to present, but 1986 to 96 really is the heavy decade of um, the bulk of the loss of lives. Uh, but, you know, 1979 was the Harvey Milk story and the assassination of Harvey Milk and the, the period between 1979 and 1986 was a celebratory time when gay pride parades were being broadcast all day long on Pacifica Radio. Um, and they had gay day broadcasts where they had the parade and concerts and um, gay choirs and gay marching bands and gay poets and gay musicians and you know lesbian scholars. Um, and it was a really exciting time. But as soon as the AIDS epidemic came to be, that sort of happy time was over. Um, so that... The, those stories that are now just a memory can be accessed in real time. And, and what I experience when I listen to those recordings is the emotion of real time. You know, my, my tears when I cry listening to a 16-year-old boy ask about love when he had nowhere to go to ask that question are the tears that I cry today, not back then. Oh, wasn't that yeah. profound? <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, it's such an amazing cultural history that that you're able to share with us. Well, it well, certainly is a, a, a privilege and an honor to, um, you know, be one of the few people that has ties to this history and has the ability to, um, you know, continue the research to provide, you know, scholars and radio historians like yourselves um, and new media makers like yourselves, um, you know, the chance to access this history and hopefully it lives again. Brian DeShazer on that note, independent radio researcher and organizer of the Queer Radio Research Project. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Uh, thank you for having me and uh, I really appreciate your interest in the subject. Well, thank you for listening to Radio Survivor today. A longer version of this program, if you heard it on the radio, is available on the web at radiosurvivor.com. You can also subscribe to this program as a podcast where you can hear the long version anywhere where you get your podcasts. Again, if you would like to email us, our email is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. On behalf of Jennifer Wades, who produced today's program, on behalf of Paul Reese Mandel, who will be back soon, and Matthew Lazar, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.